What a game. The exciting high-octane offense of the Kansas City Chiefs taking on that powerful defense of the San Francisco 49ers. Down the middle. Hill. Open. Caught. And off here. It. It's Moses City. The big plays in for the touchdown. First and goal pass. Open. Touchdown. Kelsey. Chiefs are back in it. It's funny what a couple of years can do. Those clips are from Super Bowl 54. It was played just three years ago, but to me, it seems like a lifetime. To be fair, a lot has happened in those three years, personally and otherwise, not least of which, of course, was a global pandemic. But I think for me, it feels so long ago because to be a fan of the Kansas City Chiefs back then was a completely different experience. The Chiefs were awful when I was growing up in the 80s. They were so bad in trying to remember the names of some of the players back then. The first one that came to mind was kicker Nick Lowry. With all due respect to Mr. Lowry and to kickers in general, if the kicker is the first name that comes to mind, that's probably not a very good football team. They got better in the 90s and even better in the aughts, but what emerged was an utterly frustrating pattern of flaming out often spectacularly and bewilderingly in the first round of the playoffs. It was just amazing how consistently successful they were at that. Yet through all that frustration, I and hundreds of thousands of Kansas City Chiefs fans stuck with the team. The Chiefs kingdom, as the fan base is called, has been steadfastly loyal. And that loyalty was finally rewarded on February 2nd, 2020, when the Chiefs, led by a young phenom quarterback named Patrick Mahomes, found themselves in the Super Bowl for the first time in my lifetime. Since moving to New York in 2009, I often find myself watching sporting events with fans of other teams, and this game was no different. A friend invited me to a Super Bowl party in Astoria, Queens. I was admittedly a bit apprehensive, knowing he was a fan of one of our rivals, the Denver Broncos. But upon arrival, I found to his credit he'd actually gone out of his way to make sure I could comfortably root for Kansas City, at least on this one night. The Chiefs scored their first touchdown late in the first quarter on an attempted pitch to the running back at the goal line that Mahomes decided to keep and run in himself. Mahomes looking to flip, takes it in for the touchdown. It wasn't anything spectacular, certainly nothing like the fourth quarter heroics that Mahomes would later orchestrate in the improbable comeback that led to Kansas City's first Super Bowl victory in 50 years. But it's what happened on the ensuing play that really stuck in my head. As the kicker, Harrison Butker, lined up to make the entirely routine extra point, the crowd behind the goalpost was doing something else entirely routine. The tomahawk chop. Welcome to season two of Sometimes It Rains. It's the end of an era in Washington. The Redskins officially changing their name. Now the Cleveland Indians change their name. They'll be the, the Guardians. The Chiefs are facing mounting pressure to change their name. In much of the Mahomes, he'll unleash it across the this field. This isn't cancel culture. People. When you put the paint on your face, you dishonor us and you dishonor us. We're not mocking the culture. Trying to slur any ethnic population, and they need to lighten up. It doesn't matter how I feel, it's how they feel. For anyone who doesn't know, the Tomahawk Chop has become a common cheer amongst fans of teams with Native American mascots. The Native American community has routinely called these chants racist and derogatory and called for fans and teams to stop. The Kansas City Chiefs themselves have asked fans to bring an end to the chant, but with little success. So there I was, sitting amongst a bunch of non-Chiefs fans, and I'm suddenly overcome with a deep sense of embarrassment. 
An embarrassment that either went unmentioned, or if we're being totally honest, most likely unnoticed by the friends around me, because it's become so commonplace in the world of sports. Nothing was said, and yet at that moment I became acutely aware of an internal conflict I hadn't confronted. For years, I've spoken openly about how offensive I thought the name of the football team in Washington was. I lambasted the Chief Wahoo logo used by the baseball team in Cleveland. I celebrated as both franchises recently announced they were changing their names. But the whole time, I'd rationalized, like so many other non-Native Americans, the idea that while some of these mascots were racist, others were paying homage to the proud history of the American Indian. And now, as I stood, I can never sit during big games, as I stood watching the team I love so much play on the biggest stage of the game, arguably in all of sports, I was suddenly struck by something I'd tucked away for far too long, that my team was part of the problem. Maybe it was the fact that I was watching without the comfort of other KC fans. More so, I imagine it was the realization that millions of people around the world suddenly had eyes on my beloved team, and that at least some of them had certainly just noticed Kansas City fans doing something deeply offensive. Shortly after, I did what I often do, and conveniently tucked that feeling away so I could enjoy the rest of the game. It was an incredible victory, and I'm so proud of Kansas City for winning that Super Bowl. But as time has gone on, it's become clear to me that I have yet to deal with the elephant in my own room. Many professional teams in high schools across the nation are making long-awaited changes and retiring Native American imagery and mascots, but there's still work to be done, and a team I root for has yet to make that change. So we're going to get into that. Before we look at the history of Native American mascots in sports, I think it's important that we talk a bit about the historical relationship between European settlers and indigenous tribes in America. And as will likely come as no shock to you, it's not great. It's crazy that people don't understand our history, which is the history of this country, the beginning history of this country. My name is Rhonda Lavaldo. I am Acoma Pueblo. I'm currently a media communications instructor at Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas. There's much debate about which European explorer truly discovered America. It's believed that Leif Erikson landed in present-day Newfoundland some 500 years before Columbus landed on the island which the native inhabitants there called Guanahani, which he called San Salvador, and which we now know as America. Just kidding, it was the Bahamas, he didn't know where he was. Shortly after that, the British, French, and Dutch, among others, began to quickly establish permanent settlements in the Americas. And what these European settlers actually discovered was an intricate patchwork of indigenous peoples representing multiple different cultures and languages spread across the entire Western Hemisphere. The actual numbers are hard to estimate, and the numbers differ wildly depending on the source. But it's generally believed that around the beginning of the 16th century, the native population in what would become the United States was conservatively somewhere between 5 and 10 million people, though other sources put that number much, much higher, comprised of more than 600 distinct tribes. European contact with these people brought with it not just war and famine, but diseases like smallpox and measles that the native population had no immunity to and which obliterated local populations. Beyond that, in the United States specifically, three primary strategies employed after the U.S. gained its independence from England led to an absolutely staggering death toll amongst what remained of the Native American population that hadn't been killed by disease. The unimaginable total estimated population decline of indigenous peoples was likely over 90%. A lot of people don't, don't get that true history because you know they don't want to hear the bad stuff. Let's sanitize history for 
kids because we can't tell them the truth if they really understood what happened to our people. I know when I went to school, we were like a chapter in the book. Prior to the American Revolution, when the American colonies were still under British control, what Native Americans hadn't been wiped out or enslaved routinely, and often out of necessity, established treaties with either the British or French. And because the British and French have historically absolutely adored fighting wars with each other, this meant a lot of fighting amongst the various tribes, based on who had sided with which country as they fought for territory in North America. When war with Britain broke out, the newly formed United States told the various tribes to stay out of the conflict, that this was between them and Britain. Britain, however, said, hey, you should side with us since we're the ones trying to protect your land. A fairly rich statement given the fact that taking everybody's land was kind of England's jam. In any case, that's precisely what the majority of tribes did, seeing the British side as the best chance they had at holding on to their territory. But the Americans won the war with Britain, gained their independence, and their newly formed government almost immediately became more aggressive in its dealing with tribal nations. Thomas Jefferson spoke of the tremendous respect he had for the Native American people, and even adorned his home in Monticello with Native American artifacts, but also hypocritically expressed support and even drew up plans for their removal. This is the first of those three strategies we spoke of earlier. Removal. Jefferson proposed that his purchase of the enormous swath of land known as the Louisiana Territory from the French in 1803 would give the U.S. a lot of land to relocate Native Americans to. In 1828, Andrew Jackson was elected seventh president of the United States. Then, in 1829, gold was discovered in the Cherokee Territory of Northern Georgia. And, well, that was that. By 1830, the Indian Removal Act was passed. So to recap, basically we said, listen, we think you are amazing. Just an incredible race of people. Really incredible. But here's the thing. We are running out of space. So we need your land. But we just bought this sweet piece of land from the French. We're going to call it Oklahoma. From your word for red, because the dirt is super red. It's not wet and fertile and full of gold like this place is, but it's a gem in its own way. Seriously. People will write musicals about this place someday. Really great. Anywho, the best part for you is that once we forcibly move you there, we'll leave you alone. You won't have to worry about us anymore. Well, until we need that land. But that's decades down the road. The removal of Native Americans from the southeastern U.S. began with the Chickasaw and Creeks in 1832, followed by the Choctaw in 1833. And then, on a cold November day in 1838, 7,000 U.S. troops arrived in Cherokee territory where they dragged men, women, and children at gunpoint from their homes with only the clothes on their back. Their homes were burned, their livestock killed, and their land distributed to white settlers by lottery. In his 1991 book, Native American Testimony, Peter Nabokov describes the event. Quote, herded into makeshift stockades with deplorable sanitation, scarce or contaminated water, and insufficient food, the Cherokee people were then quick-marched 800 miles to what would eventually become Oklahoma. Along the way, somewhere between 4,000 and 5,000 Cherokees died, one-fourth of their entire population. This tragedy, known as the Trail of Tears, is actually part of the limited history that is often included in American textbooks. What is often not included is that there were over 40 other such removals including the forced marches of the Navajo, Potawatomi, Seminole, and Muscogee, among many others. All these stereotypes that people think of Native people 
that we live off the government, we get free education, we don't pay taxes. You know, we have to try and like educate others about those things. Like I pay taxes. I don't get any free checks from the government. <laughs> I would love to have that one be true. All those things were paid for and they were part of, you know, treaty obligations that were owed to us. The tribes were moved onto parcels of land called reservations. Spread throughout Oklahoma, Nebraska, and Kansas, and then later further out west, these parcels of land were cramped, especially given that feuding tribes were often placed in the same reservations. Food was scarce, and tribes that had thrived on hunting mostly had to learn to be farmers. Starvation quickly became commonplace. Forbidden from leaving the reservation without written permission, Reservations became virtual prisons. Hello, my name is Daryl Holler, Lummi Nation, Lummi Elder, uh, retired from the Lummi government, and now am the executive director of a nonprofit, Children of the Setting Sun Productions. On the surface, you know, it's, it's kind of revolting, but then when you dig deeper in the true history of this country and the genocide of our people, you know, and then to make fun of that, so you're, you're actually making fun of our historical plight. We're gonna get back to sports in a second, I promise. But before we do, I wanna make sure we are very clear about an aspect of this that often gets treated as hyperbole when it's mentioned. The term genocide didn't exist before World War II. Since then, it has been clearly defined by both the UN General Assembly and by the United States in its own domestic law in US Code Section 1091 of Title 18. What the United States did to the Native Americans, first through forced removal and extermination, and later through legislative discrimination and cultural extermination, as we'll get into, covers all the acts that define genocide under both international and the U.S.'s own law. That's not hyperbole. That is just fact. When you don't know those things, then, you know, it's, it's really humiliating to, to see us represented as something that's for sport and for recreation, you know. If you don't know that, then, and we do, you know, and that's why it hurts so much. The word mascot most likely comes from the French word mascotte, meaning witch, fairy, or sorcerer. According to the Dixon Baseball Dictionary, it appears the first connection to this concept with sports was in an 1883 issue of The Sporting Life that centered around a boy named Chick, considered to be a good luck charm. It seems children were often the source of the mascot craze in the early days. In 1886, the New York Times spoke of a boy named Charlie Gallagher, said to have been, quote, born with teeth and is guaranteed to possess all the magic charms of a genuine mascot. My fiance has insisted that I mention the first football mascot is believed to have been Handsome Dan, a bulldog that belonged to a member of the Yale class of 1892. This would make sense given that the game as we know it appears to have been developed by Walter Camp, a Yalie, around 1880. In any case, Handsome Dan is still the mascot to this day, along with a Pretty peppy fight song. Bulldogs, arf! Bulldogs, arf! Bow, wow, wow. Eli, Yale. Bulldogs, arf! Bulldogs, arf! Bow, wow, wow. Our team will never fail. Native American iconography has existed in non-native culture nearly as long as Europeans have been on this continent. It's become so pervasive, I think it's safe to say many non-natives scarcely think about just how often Native American imagery is used in our daily lives. This is Jim Britt bringing you the story of the Braves family direct from the wigwam in Boston. Here, Bob at Wright and Tommy Holmes give a few tips to some Braves of the future. Neither of these stars was ever too busy to give helpful hints to boys. 
Where sports is concerned, again, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly who was the first to adopt a Native American mascot, though it's generally traced to the early 1900s. In 1912, the Boston Red Stockings, completely separate franchise by the way from the Boston Red Sox, having suffered through several years at the bottom of the standings, decided a name change might turn their fortunes around. After several short-lived names, they finally settled on the Boston Braves. The name came about as a reference to team owner James Gaffney, who was connected with the New York political machine known as Tammany Hall. Politicians associated with Tammany Hall were often called the Braves, because the Tammany Society name was borrowed from the name of the popular chief of the Lenny Lenape Nation in the Delaware Valley. Following a miracle 1914 season in which they became the only team in history to be in last place on the 4th of July and come back to win the World Series, the name was deemed a good luck charm. It stuck around even after the team moved to Milwaukee in 1953 and then Atlanta in 1966. They remain the Atlanta Braves to this day. My name is Rajiv Joseph. I'm a playwright and television and screenwriter. And I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio, but I've been living in New York City for the last 22 years. Rajiv Joseph is a tremendous playwright who came to prominence with the Broadway premiere of his play Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, starring Robin Williams. Joseph's play was critically lauded and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2010. He also won an Obie Award for his play Describe the Night, and his work has been produced all around the world. He's written extensively for television and also happens to have written what I believe to be a highly underappreciated sports film, Draft Day. But for all that, I specifically wanted to talk with Rajiv because he also happens to be a diehard Cleveland sports fan. And that's where our story turns next. How did you grow up becoming a sports fan? I always say, I, I, you know, I think it's the, the, the cliche is that we all get it from our dad. I grew up with a single mom. I absolutely owe all of my sports <laughs> fandom to my mom. Yeah. Um, but where did yours come from? Both my parents. My mom grew up in Cleveland and she was a huge Indians fan. And particularly Rocky Calavito was her favorite player. And she's always had a real closeness to that team and the franchise. For throughout most of my life, they were they were just the worst team in the world until I was in college, until I, until about 1994 when they finally went to a World Series. And then my dad is an immigrant. He came from India. He moved to this country in 1963 when he was 18 years old, and he attended University of Dayton in Dayton, Ohio. Following on the heels of the success the Boston Braves had, the Cleveland Spiders found themselves in need of a new name in 1915. What do you, like, what, what do you know about what happened then, how they sort of settled on the name Indians? So I know that when they were still the Spiders, or maybe they had changed to the Naps, I can't remember, but... Like Boston, the baseball team in Cleveland had similarly gone through multiple team names, and after settling on the name Spiders, fans hated it so much, they decided in 1903 to simply name the team after their best player. Nap Lajoie. Thus, they became the Cleveland Naps. There was a, either the same owner or like dual owners that, that owned the St. Louis team and the Cleveland team. And they did this really, you know, at the time it wasn't illegal, I guess, but it, it certainly seems kind of egregiously wrong that they just, they let all the good players in Cleveland go to St. Louis so that that team could win the pennant. And though they just filled the Cleveland team with just has-beens. It's almost like the story of Major League. But when Lajoie was sold away in 1914, they needed a new name. And one of those has-beens was the former star of the team, Louis Sokolexis, who was, you know, a, a great player for the the Naps slash Spiders, but had fallen on injury and alcoholism and was slowly deteriorating. Sock, as he was called, was, though there is some debate about this, the first Native American to play professional baseball. Born on the Penobscot Indian Reservation in Maine in 1871, he was unquestionably the first recognized Native American to play the game. 
and boy was he ever recognized. He joined the Cleveland Spiders in 1897, was a phenom in his first season, and became a beloved figure in Cleveland. Yet even when praising Sock Alexis, the papers would routinely call him a savage, a red man, and constantly made jokes about collecting scalps. His own teammate, Jesse Burkett, openly called him a bead peddler. And this was all by people who admired him. When his growing addiction to alcohol began to sabotage his career, the headlines turned darker. They called him a half-breed and a man of his people. One article read, quote, If this poor savage had only been born without the Indian's love for strong water. And then somewhere along the line, the journalists in Cleveland, knowing they wanted to rename the team, decided in honor of Sock Alexis to name it the Cleveland Indians. Which I always thought was interesting because, oh, so this wasn't, you know, kind of, as you said, fetishization of Native Americans. It was actually a specific honoring of a specific player who was Native American yeah. and who thrived in Cleveland on our team. I find that really interesting. What I think messed it all up was this, like, which came afterwards, I think, was the introduction of Chief Wahoo as the mascot, which was this sort of utterly racist caricature of a Native American. It was actually worse when it first came out, which is hard to imagine because even as it was a couple of years ago, it was still pretty terrible. Do you know who Joe Posnanski is at all? Are you familiar with him? Paz. Yeah. He's my favorite sports writer in the world. Right. I think he's incredible. He He's from Cleveland and he tackled what from his reporting has kind of become the myth of how the Cleveland Indians got their name. Gotcha. And what he uncovered was that there is some truth to that story, but that if you go back and look at the actual articles written in the papers when they made the, the name change, there is literally no mention of Sock Alexis really? whatsoever. He did, however, find a cartoon in the Cleveland Plain Dealer the day after the name change was announced that would be difficult to properly describe on a podcast, but suffice to say, is one of the single most racist cartoons I've ever seen, complete with an American Indian in full ceremonial dress and holding a bat while he declares he, quote, heap big stick and a catcher saying something in what we are to believe is a tribal language, only to be told by the umpire to talk English when you talk to me. So while there was a time when Sock Alexis was a local hero in Cleveland, so much so that for a brief time the locals did refer to the team as the Indians, it is not why they officially adopted the name in 1915. They did it because it had worked for Boston. This was, this was a cartoon that they ran the day that they chose to do it. Oh wow. Yeah, that's pretty terrible. For me, that it put a lot of things into perspective. That like, yeah, that makes sense that that's how you get a Chief Wahoo. If it... Well, I mean, yeah, it's not surprising. And it's like anything else, it's like branding. Uh, that's what they were trying to do. And, you know, I think it's all about what looks good on a helmet, yeah. on, a, on, a, on a cap, yeah. you know? Following the example set by professional baseball, high schools and colleges around the country began to adopt Native American mascots in the 1920s and 30s. And in 1932, the Boston baseball team suddenly weren't the only Braves in town. George Preston Marshall founded a professional football franchise that played on the same field as the Braves and thus adopted the same name, a practice that wasn't uncommon at the time. 
A year later, Marshall moved the team to Fenway Park and changed the team's name to the Redskins. When he moved the team to Washington, D.C. in 1937, he made the decision to keep the name, despite the fact that Redskin was already a well-established racial slur by then. The Merriam-Webster Collegiate Dictionary had listed the word as, quote, often contemptuous as early as 1898. Nonetheless, the team name would hold for the next 80-plus years. It's not terribly surprising once you know a bit more about Marshall. He was a well-known segregationist who was once quoted as saying, We'll start signing Negroes when the Harlem Globetrotters start signing whites. The NFL integrated in 1946, but Marshall didn't sign a single black player until 1962, when then-Attorney General Robert Kennedy threatened to revoke the government-held lease on D.C. Stadium if Marshall didn't acquiesce. Jack Kent Cooke took over the team in the early 70s, around the same time Native American leaders convinced the team to change its infamous fight song that included the lyrics, Scalp 'em, Swamp 'em, We Will Take 'em, Big Score. Then Dan Snyder bought the team for $800 million in 1999. Despite growing calls for the team to change its name, Snyder remained steadfastly in support of the name. Hello, my name is Free Boise. I am a project manager and director assistant at CSSP. I'm also a former collegiate athlete and a, a huge sports fan. When I was a young boy, my first memory of the Washington Redskins, you know, when I told my grandpa in the first grade what, you know, my favorite football team was, he said, why? He said, Redskin isn't a name to be proud of. And he, you know, gave me the definition of what a Redskin is and, you know, how that name has been used in history to represent our people. And uh, yeah, it just kind of stuck with me ever since. And it is racist at the end of the day. Sticking to his guns, in 2013, Snyder was famously quoted in a USA Today piece saying, We'll never change the name. It's that simple. Never. You can use all caps. Funny thing, that word never. It's the end of an era in Washington. The Redskins officially changing their name, bowing to years of pressure because some believe the name is a racial slur. Because in the summer of 2020, amidst the Black Lives Matter protests surrounding the killing of George Floyd, investors that included Nike, Pepsi, and FedEx began the process of formally asking the Redskins to change their name. And by July of 2020, an effort that had begun in 1971, now bolstered by significant financial stakes from major companies, finally came to fruition. As the team announced it was severing ties with the name and logo. It's a sad day. I'm kind of heartbroken. I'm sad. I cannot be upset. We are changing our name because of the Native American. It doesn't matter how I feel, it's how they feel. After a few seasons of being simply called the Washington football team, this 2022 NFL season has seen the debut of the Washington Commanders. I think that the way Washington as an organization handled it was pretty unprofessional. I think they definitely could have handled it a lot better and understood where a lot of people were coming from more. I'm just glad to see, you know, that it that it changed. My name is Vaughn Sharp. I serve as president of the National Congress of American Indians, which is the oldest and largest uh, national organization of tribal nations in the United States. It was founded in 1944. I should mention, Fawn took time out of an incredibly busy schedule to talk with me, but had to do so while driving from Portland, Oregon to Olympia, Washington. So please excuse the less than optimal audio quality. Just curious, did you by any chance get a, did you see the video that they, that they released? Oh, I just cringed. <laughs> I, I, I cringed at that video as, as the word was used with a free pass and used in a way to promote uh, a, a change that was for public perception only, that was done without directly engaging us as they promised. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I cringed <laughs> and I saw that. 
born of a spirit. One, two, three. Hail to the greats that laid our foundation. But even the greatest of legacies of all. We are the commanders. Where the NFL is concerned, there's still a massive problem with the ownership, certainly not having any Native American representation, but really very little minority representation at all. Well, it makes sense. You know, the country's built on, upon these white male um, prerogatives. We're still trying to get that right in this country, you know, and that's really where we can play a part in trying to educate folks on the real history, you know. There's a history not only between us as people, but the, the history of our relationship with all living things, you know, it's pretty sacred. We got to get our act together to ensure that we have this way of life for the next generation. Remember that idea to move Native Americans west of the Mississippi so that European Americans could settle the land east of the Mississippi River? Yeah, that didn't last. White Americans quickly became fascinated with the stories of the untamed West, the stories told by explorers like Lewis and Clark. This was embraced by the U.S. government, who began offering next to nothing for large tracts of land to pioneering settlers willing to brave the newly established Oregon and Santa Fe trails. Couple that with the expanding railroad lines and the discovery of, you guessed it, gold in the mountains out west, and suddenly there were thousands of white settlers encroaching on the tribal lands of yet more Native Americans. The government had, quote, solved its problems with the Native peoples it had relocated through the reservation system. Now, it had to find a way to deal with the Native Americans who had always lived on the Great Plains and who were well used to fighting to keep their land. This began a decades-long campaign that has generally become known as the Plains Indian Wars. And that brings us to the second strategy employed by the United States to solve its Indian problem, war. My name is Galene Krauser, and I'm a citizen of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and the executive director of the Kansas City Indian Center. Right now, the majority of the curriculum that's being taught in schools really cuts off at the, you know, Indian Wars. What began as isolated skirmishes throughout the Great Plains began to resemble something closer to all-out war in 1864 with what has become known as the Sand Creek Massacre. News of the massacre enraged tribes throughout the Plains, and that led to continued bloodshed that would last throughout the 1870s, eventually culminating in the Great Sioux War of 1875, wherein the Lakota and Cheyenne banded together to fight against the advancing U.S. Army. Led by Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, this did not prove to be the easy victory the United States expected. Quite the opposite, in fact. Instead, what really led to the downfall of the Native American tribes along the Great Plains was a long game plan orchestrated by General Philip Sheridan. Sheridan wanted a war of attrition that would break the spirit of the Native Americans by destroying their food, shelter, and livestock in overwhelming force. The goal was to make it impossible for Native Americans to live on the plains. Some of this was done through surprise raids on villages, but perhaps the most devastating tactic is almost beyond imagination. The primary food source across the plains at that time was buffalo. Buffalo thrived on the plains, so much so that it is estimated their numbers reached between 30 and 60 million at one point. But as the Transcontinental Railroad made its way out west, and at the urging of Sheridan, hunters began to arrive in droves to kill the buffalo in order to, quote, destroy the Indians' commissary. Clearly, this killing was not to show off hunting skill or prowess because when the trains encountered large herds, they would slow down so that the men could pick the animals off without ever leaving the train. Then the train would speed up again, leaving the trail of carcasses in their wake. 
Between 1872 and 1874 alone, more than 3.5 million buffalo were killed and left to rot. When Texas considered a bill to protect the species, Sheridan countered, saying, quote, These men have done more in the last two years to settle the vexed Indian question than the entire regular army has done in the last 40. Let them kill, skin, and sell until the buffaloes are exterminated. And they nearly did just that. By the end of the 19th century, only 300 buffalo were left in the wild. Slowly but inevitably, the Plains tribes surrendered and agreed to be moved to government-sanctioned reservations. The public, generally speaking, has been very ignorant of who we are as indigenous people beyond the scope of some pretty basic highlights of history. Because of things like sports mascots, we are still seen as that merciless Indian savage. So whether it's an old Western or a new Western, or sports, you know, any kind of media type of things, that's, it seems to be the focus. And we're so much more than that, and we always have been. Almost overnight, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show captured the imagination of the public. He brought the Western frontier and the Indians to the sidewalks of New York. The city folks saw for themselves the true pioneer spirit of the West. His name came to typify to all of us, frontiers and freedom, adventure and fair play. The spirit of the West. By the late 19th century, popular culture had developed an obsession with the mythologizing of the American West. Every good myth needs a hero and a villain, and since there was no chance the white man was going to be the villain, the cowboys became heroes and typically the Indians were the villains. When the burgeoning moving picture industry began to gain a toehold as the primary way Americans consume stories, the Western immediately became a staple genre for every studio in Hollywood. As Stanley Corkin, professor of English at the University of Cincinnati, points out in his book Cowboys as Cold Warriors, these films served as a way to promote nationalism and American values. The idea of rugged individualism and self-reliance. But more than that, these films tended to promote the myth of conquest. The idea that the capturing of land was not only inevitable, but inherently good. God bless you. And God bless you too, Buffalo Bill! Cowboys and Indians was suddenly big business, and it wasn't long before sports teams started to cash in on the craze. And one of them managed to be both cowboy and Indian, and got its start in a state that loves themselves a good cowboy story. On the next episode of Sometimes It Rains. Sometimes It Rains is presented by Ad Astra Productions and is produced by Nick Schmitz and me, Matt Hostetler. Our original music is by the incomparable Gary Grundy. You can find more of his music at www.garygrundy.com. Our executive producers are Bruce Jaffe and Mike Lucero. Audio recording and post-production support is provided by Outpost Worldwide. Audio mixing by Quinn Cecil. Special thanks this season go out to Galen Krauser, Rhonda Lavaldo, Fawn Sharp, Vahe Gregorian, Rajiv Joseph, Daryl Hilaire, and Free Boise. Additional thanks to Kansas City Indian Center, Haskell Indian Nations University, the National Congress of American Indians, Kansas City Star, Ty Defoe, Todd Cerverus, Ali Ewalt, Jennifer Atakni, and Children of the Setting Sun Productions. Additional music provided by Nagamo Publishing. Sometimes It Rains would like to acknowledge that this season was written and recorded on the traditional land and ancestral home of Native Americans, Indigenous, and First Nations people. In Brooklyn, New York, this includes the Canarsie and Muncie Lenape tribal groups. And in Kansas City, more than 98 tribal groups, including the Kickapoo, Kaw and Kansa, Osage, Oshethi Shakowin, Odos, Missouri, Potawatomi, Sioux, Shawnee, and Wyandotte. 
We honor their elders both past and present and acknowledge the vital importance of educating ourselves about the histories of these people.